0: If you would take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are continuing our series through this New Testament book. We began this series only a few weeks ago. We will be here for some time today. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41, and when you arrive there, because you are the people of God, this is the word of God, and we have gathered here on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear the God who still speaks in his word, a word that will not return void. Acts chapter two, I'm going to read beginning in verse 37 through verse 41. Luke records as he is carried along by the spirit of God, these words. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. As some of you are aware, I came to faith in Jesus Christ when I was a junior in high school. Up until that point in my life, I had been basically disinterested in Christianity. In fact, in many ways, I was put off by what I perceived Christianity really was. This all began to change when a young lady who was in one of my classes and was a friend of mine, actually, somewhat of a distant friend, but a friend nonetheless. That young lady garnered the boldness to share the message about Christ with me. She was having a conversation with someone else in the class, and I'm sure there was a teacher in the class. I don't remember that, but um, as she was having this conversation, I sat in the back of the class, and she sat about halfway up in the class, and I heard the conversation, and I inquired, and she turned to me, and she began to share the message about Christ. And I remember later conversations with her and with others in which and through which they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. But this time in class, for the very first time, the gospel message and the message about Jesus piqued my interest. It was nothing more at the time uh, than that. I was, at that point, curious to find out more. And for a period of a few months, I learned through Bible reading. I had never really read through scripture and so I started reading through The Bible, and I learned through that Bible reading and eventually visiting with many others that the gospel message, that is the message about who Jesus is and what Jesus had accomplished, that message demanded a response from me that was more than mere agreement with the gospel. I came to realize that the message that others were sharing with me demanded more than mere affirmation with the facts about Jesus, or to the facts about Jesus. Well, in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to come back around to that, but in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41, we learn that Peter's preaching at Pentecost called for a particular response to the gospel he had just preached, the good news about Jesus Christ, So this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to unpack this response. What does it mean to respond rightly to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we're going to do that, if you're taking notes, in three sections in the text. First of all, we are going to identify a question. This text, as with many other biblical texts, begins with a question. And we're going to identify and unpack for just a moment that question. We won't spend long under this first point. The second stage of our exposition this morning will focus in on Peter's answer to the question. So the crowd poses a question and then Peter answers the question in verses 38 to 40. We will spend the bulk of our sermon time this morning in Peter's answer to the question. And then finally, after looking together at a question... And Peter's answer to the question, we are going to look at verse 41, where we find a response to all of this that's taking place. And so the crowd poses the question, Peter answers the question, then the crowd responds to Peter's answer. And so those are the three stages with which we are going to unpack Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41 this morning. Let's begin by looking together at this initial question. Look with me, if you would, at the text, verse 37 where we find the question. Now, when they, that is the crowd, after Peter had preached the message of the gospel, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, now here's the question. What shall we do? What shall we do? Now, a little background here is perhaps informative for us. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you may remember that God has just sent the Holy Spirit upon the church at one of the annual Jewish feasts known as Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And this Sending of the spirit was in fulfillment of the promise that Jesus Christ gave in Acts chapter one, verse five, that his disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from his ascension. You may remember if you've been with us that Acts chapter one really does begin with a conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Not long after that conversation, of course, or immediately really after that conversation, Jesus is taken up into heaven and takes his seat at the right hand of the father, where he is established as the Christ and the King over heaven and earth. Well, during that conversation Jesus has with his disciples, he promises them that soon, very soon, as they stay in Jerusalem, they will be clothed with power from on high. They will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. So Christ fulfilled the promise and the spirit descends on the church in Acts chapter two, verses one through 13. And then in verses 14 to 36, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon explaining from the scriptures. He would have called them the scriptures. We call them the Old Testament. He explains from the Old Testament what had just happened. And Peter tells us, Tells the hearers there in Acts chapter two that at Pentecost, God fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit to empower his people so that they may serve as witnesses to Christ throughout the world. So this was a fulfillment of God's promise and of God's promise that was brought to fulfillment through the ascension of Jesus Christ. Additionally, throughout this message that Peter was preaching, and this is all going to bring us to this question that we're identifying at the beginning of our sermon this morning. Throughout Peter's sermon, he highlights the guilt of his audience. He tells them things like this. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. This was all part of God's sovereign plan for his son to redeem and rescue sinners. However, what he highlights is you are responsible for it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed, you murdered, you crucified by the hands of lawless men, Peter says. In fact, look down with me at verse 36. This is just the verse right before the crowd asks the question. Verse 36, Peter concludes his sermon with these words. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Now notice how he ends. This is Jesus whom you crucified. Well, Luke tells us that this message elicits a reaction among the members of the crowd, these Jewish people that are gathered to see what all the fuss was about at Pentecost. And Luke tells us their hearts were cut. I love that imagery. We get it though, don't we? Even in English, we get it. Um, They were bothered, deeply troubled and distressed. This is a figure of speech. Their hearts were cut, by what Peter had declared to them. Of course, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and they hadn't recognized him as such and bowed in submission to him as such, but perhaps even more that they were guilty as sinners for the death of Christ. And they respond appropriately. Is there anything we can do about this? We find a similar question in Acts chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. We'll get there eventually. Acts chapter 16, verse 30, where the Philippian jailer asks this question What must I do to be saved? I think it's a similar question here in our text. What shall we do essentially means what can we do to resolve this problem and posture of guilt before God? for the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the question. The question is very simply, what shall we do in recognition of their guilt before God? Now the answer to the question, and I mentioned to you in the introduction that we would spend the majority of our time on the answer, and you'll see why, the bulk of the text is here. But the answer to the question, what shall we do? Look with me, if you would, at verses 38 and 39. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, Now here's his answer in a nutshell repent and be baptized. You can just jot that down if you're taking notes. Repent and be baptized. That summarizes what Peter says. He goes on to say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, for the promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I highlighted a moment ago these two commands that are central to Peter's answer to the question, what shall we do? First, repent. Second, be baptized. Now, on the one hand, these are necessary responses to the gospel. We saw that even just at the beginning of this service, right, where TJ stood up before you all and he was submitting himself to Jesus Christ, submitting himself through baptism to God, recognizing, of course, that he is a sinner and in need of a savior. And the only sufficient savior for sinners like TJ and like his pastor and like you all is Jesus Christ, And that's what he was doing. He was responding to the gospel. And TJ was active in that response, wasn't he? But there's another sense, and I wanna point this out to you because it's so heavy in the grammar of our text. There's another sense in the text in which we're passive. We're not the ones doing much of anything. We've contributed the problem Now we need someone to act on our behalf in providing the solution. And we find that in in the text through the use of what's called in Greek grammar, the passive voice, other grammars as well, the passive voice. That is, we're not the ones acting, we're the ones for whom and upon whom God is acting. And there are actually five passives in this short text. Five passive verbs. Let me point out just a few of them to you. Peter says, Be baptized. Baptism, by its very nature, is not something you do to yourself, it's something that's done to you. TJ did not baptize himself a moment ago, he was baptized by another. Additionally, look down at verse 40 just point out a couple more of these passives. Verse 40, where Peter continues to exhort the crowd, save yourselves. You see that? That's the English standard version. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, I love the ESV. We have so many great English translations. The ESV is just the one that I opt to preach out of. I could preach out of any number of English translations, but here I really do think the ESV may miss it a bit. This is not what would be called a middle reflexive, save yourself. This is a passive, Rather than save yourself, it ought to be something like, I think, again, I tell you this on a regular basis, they don't ask me to do these translations and with good reason. But I think instead of save yourself, it ought to be something like, be saved. In other words, you can't save yourself. This is something that must be done for you, in you, on you, applied to you. Be saved from this crooked generation. And then look down at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Of course, that's passive again. And there were added, passive. He doesn't say, and they joined. That's active. No, no, they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. And so consistently throughout our text, I don't want you to miss this. There is an active response. And we're gonna highlight that and talk about this. You must repent of your sins. You must be baptized. However, throughout all of this, throughout our response, we recognize that we fundamentally cannot save ourselves. And it isn't even properly our response that saves us. It's the work of God in Christ for us that saves us. Inherent in the gospel that we preach as Christians is the bad news of our spiritual inability and the good news of God's spiritual ability to save incapable sinners. And that's found even in the Greek grammar of the text. Additionally, okay, so we, I just wanted to point that out to you because it can be lost as we just skim through This text. Additionally, I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit is promised to those who respond rightly to the gospel at the end of verse 38. Now, we're going to come full circle here and go back and look at these two commandments two commands repent and be baptized. But just to summarize everything Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit is promised to those who respond rightly to the gospel at the end of verse 38. And then Peter informs us in verse 39 that the promise of the Holy Spirit is given to everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. In other words, not just a select group of elite Christians. Everyone receives the Spirit of God. Now, back to these two fundamental imperatives or commands that Peter gives in verse 38. Let's look at each one in their turn. First, I mentioned to you, Peter says, repent. In response to the question, what shall we do? Repent. Repentance communicates a change in direction. Right, some of you have heard this. If you've been in Sunday school class for any length of time, perhaps you've taken some various other seminars or whatnot in which the concept of repentance was was unpacked and you've heard definitions of repentance uh, along these lines. It communicates a change of mind or a change in direction or a change in allegiance. And that's all accurate. Repentance means moving from going in this direction to then going in this direction. Uh, perhaps a helpful analogy would be this. I have I have friends. I was raised a Dallas Cowboys fan. No one booed, no one cheered. We'll see. I got a thumbs up just now. I was raised a Dallas Cowboys fan. We, I know. I am as well at times. Uh, born in Houston, we had the Houston Oilers, but then they moved to Tennessee. I followed them eventually, right? So I was raised a Cowboys fan. And uh, if you don't know who the Dallas Cowboys are. You care little about professional football. You just need to know they're a professional football team, okay? They have been known as America's team. Some would protest that. Well, some of my friends are what I would call former Cowboys fans. Now, I'm not a very good fan, really. But, but they are former Cowboys fans, and they will even talk to you about why they are former Cowboys fans, and they'll say something like this. I was a Cowboys fan until Jerry Jones. It always goes like that, by the way. I was a Cowboys fan <laughs> until Jerry Jones. Amen. Who's, who's the owner of the Dallas Cowboys? Fired whom? Tom Landry. Some of you know this. Yeah. Others of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. <laughs> Hang with us. I was a Cowboys fan until Jerry Jones fired Tom Landry. Tom Landry coached the Dallas Cowboys for 29 consecutive seasons and was loved, loved by Cowboys fans. And so many of these Cowboys fans were loyal to Tom. And repentance, let's come full circle. Repentance is what these once Cowboys fans have done. They had trust, allegiance, and affections for the Dallas Cowboys until Jerry Jones. And then what did they do? They repented. They turned from their trust, allegiance, and affections for the Cowboys. They turned away from the Cowboys. That's the concept of repentance, okay? That's what Peter has in mind, not the Dallas Cowboys. That's the concept essentially of what he means when he calls on his hearers to repent. It is indeed to turn your trust, to turn your allegiance, and to turn your affections away from your sinful rebellion against God. So you see, it's more than just confessing. It involves confession, but it's more than that. It's a disposition of the affections and of the will, it's changing teams. I know I was going this way, and I no longer want to go this way. I know that my allegiance fundamentally was to myself, my own idolatry. I know my life was characterized by rebellion against God, so I'm turning away from those things. Now, repentance is one side of a two-sided coin in the New Testament and throughout Scripture You must remember this because this other side of the coin is assumed in the text. It's assumed even in this summary of repent. It's also assumed in this command, be baptized. The other side of this same coin is what the Bible calls faith. Faith. So Christian repentance, now don't miss this. Christian repentance technically is turning away from Shifting your allegiance, your trust, and your affections away from sin. That's repentance. Faith is turning your trust, allegiance, and affections to Christ. So oftentimes the Bible will call this entire response repentance. Oftentimes the Bible will call this entire response faith but when we find both of these concepts, there are, these are just ways of highlighting one side of a two-sided coin. Now, why are we unpacking this at length? Because this is essential to properly understanding what we are called to do in response to the message about Christ. It is essential. Moreover, it helps us understand what we are called to do when we are sharing the message about Christ with others and calling them to repent and believe in Christ. It strikes at the heart, I think, of a common misconception in our day. Christian repentance and faith, and I alluded to this in the introduction, Christian repentance and Christian faith are not simply affirming propositions or truths about Jesus Christ. That's not what Christian repentance is. It includes affirming these propositions. It includes agreement, but it's so much more than this. In fact, the kind of quote faith that is limited to mere agreement with the facts about Christ is the kind of faith the demons exercise according to James chapter two, verse 19. And let me say this with clarity. Because I think if I didn't do it, I would be remiss and be doing you a disservice this morning. Hell will be populated by people who affirm the facts about Christ but refuse to give their trust, allegiance, and affections to Christ. Church family, do not miss this. So this concept of repentance communicates a shift, not just from ignorance to awareness, Yes, I believe that Jesus came, that Jesus died in place of sinners, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he ascended, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that he will someday return to this earth to claim what is rightfully his. It includes affirmation, but it's so much more than that. Christian repentance and its other side, Christian faith, is a shift of allegiance a shift of affections and a shift of trust away from sin and away from a lifestyle of sin to Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what Peter is saying in the text. So when we declare that Jesus Christ has come, that he's died in place of sinners, that he's been raised on the third day that he has ascended as Acts highlights time and time again and that he will someday return. Dear friends, please hear me. I can't say this enough. We are not soliciting mere agreement. We're soliciting allegiance. We're soliciting a change of the heart, an inclination of the affections, a surrender of the life. That's called repentance and faith in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't think you have responded in this way, maybe, maybe for years you have affirmed truths about Jesus. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home. Perhaps you are being raised in a Christian home. Perhaps you're memorizing the answer to questions and answers. Perhaps you're memorizing scripture. Maybe you're going to Sunday school every week and you're learning all of these facts about who Jesus is, about who you are, about who God is, but you haven't actually shifted your allegiance, affections, and trust away from sin to Jesus Christ. We would love to talk with you. And there's no better time in the world to do that than this morning. And so if you would, would you have the boldness after service to come up and have a conversation with us? We would love to come alongside of you and you alongside of us. Even if you have questions about this, please come and have this conversation. You can meet us, meet someone who is eager to talk with you about this at that room called the Crossroads. When you leave this room, take a left and not many steps out there. On the right-hand side, there is that room called Crossroads. Go in there and have this conversation that really does in our opinion, demand your life, your soul, your all. Secondly, so we said Peter responds to this question, what shall we do with the answer, repent. There's this second imperative or command. And the second command is simply this, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I want you to notice what Peter does. Peter tethers forgiveness of sins, not simply to baptism, okay, but to a proper response to the gospel, namely repentance and subsequent baptism. So the promise of the reception of forgiveness isn't just to the ordinance of baptism. It's actually to those who respond rightly to Jesus Christ and as a result, follow him in baptism. So just to be clear, Peter's point is not that baptism secures forgiveness. After all, the thief on the cross is promised presence in paradise with Jesus, and he never receives water baptism. No, Peter's point is that forgiveness is granted to those who genuinely repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ, resulting in obedience by being baptized. It's the whole response to which Jesus, rather Peter, attaches this promise of forgiveness. Now, I want to say this because we're a Baptist church, right? We, it's in our very name. First Baptist Powell. Some make too much of baptism. And that's certainly a danger. I've, I've made mention of that here just a moment ago. If we attach forgiveness uniquely to the act of being immersed in water, then we've probably made too much of baptism. But there is an equal error of making too little of Baptism. And viewing it as optional for the follower of Jesus Christ. And it's it's really ironic, actually, because, because this this happens in Baptist circles. Baptists making little of baptism. This is ironic. We're named after the ordinance. And yet it happens. These three responses to Christ: repentance, faith, and baptism are often described as a single response to the gospel. Why? Because repentance implies faith and vice versa resulting in, now don't miss this, obedience through baptism. That's necessary. That's an obligation for the follower of Christ. Friends, baptism is an obligation. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you need to be pursuing baptism. Baptism. Peter's immense words. What shall we do? Repent, of course, implying this turning away of your affections and trust and allegiance away from sin to Jesus Christ and be baptized. Not an option. I remember a conversation I had with somebody years ago and it stands out in my mind because it was a burden on my heart after the conversation. I, I preached a sermon and uh, even talked about the Lord's Supper and fencing the Lord's Supper, essentially talking about the qualifications for coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And there was a man who was in the church service, and he came out to me after the church service, and he was I saw him coming, and I could just tell, you know, sometimes you can just tell this is not going to be a pleasant conversation. And uh, he came up to me, and he was furious absolutely furious because I had the audacity to demand that if he is a follower of Jesus Christ, he should be baptized. And he told me he just didn't sense the Lord leading him to baptism. And uh, I I told him, well, you know, dear friend, I understand what you're saying, but please hear me the Lord will never lead you contrary to what he has commanded you in his word. Ever. And he has commanded you in his word. Be baptized. So whatever you're hearing and whatever spirit is leading you contrary to baptism, it is not the Holy Spirit. Now, I went on to tell him, This is not my message. And please understand, I'm under obligation to preach the message Jesus Christ has handed down to the apostles and they've handed down to their disciples and they've handed down to their disciples all the way down to the present day. And it's my job to take this message and hand it on and pass it on without changing the message. So I do hope that you won't walk away from this conversation mad, but considering whether indeed Jesus Christ has spoken with clarity, be baptized, as I believe he has. We find that right here in the text. Repent and be baptized. It makes little sense after all, doesn't it? Think about it with me. It makes little sense to claim to follow Jesus Christ and refuse to follow his initial command to be baptized. It makes little sense. It's a contradiction, now, don't misunderstand me. It's, it's possible to trust in Jesus Christ and not to be baptized. There are a host of reasons why that may be the case. And not the least of which, actually, is your church may be approaching baptism slowly, considering whether you are ready to embrace all that baptism entails and whether the church as a congregation is ready to embrace you as a member. That process is a faithful process and an appropriate process. So there are a number of reasons why you may be one trusting in Jesus and not yet baptized. So I'm not speaking to that situation. What I am questioning is anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and does not desire to be baptized. That's what I'm questioning. So maybe some of you here this morning, as you're hearing this, you think in your mind, I do trust in Jesus. I do. And I haven't desired to be baptized. But now you know. So come have a conversation. In obedience to Jesus Christ, to repent, yes, and to be baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, we have identified a question in the text. And the question is really straightforward. What shall we do in response to our guilt? And the message of the gospel, what shall we do? And the answer Peter gives is simply this. And we could really just summarize it with those first few words, repent and be baptized. And everything we've said really is just us unpacking those two primary commands. Well, in addition to the question and the answer, I want you to look with me at their response in verse 41. So look down at verse 41, where we find the crowd or some members of the crowd responding. So Luke writes, those who received his word, that is Peter's word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, a couple of things here. I want you to notice the order between receiving or believing Peter's message and being baptized. Those who believe the gospel were subsequently baptized. In the New Testament, I have dear friends who don't agree with this. I love them, or at least the practice appears to be contrary to this. In fact, I was once one who espoused a practice that was contrary to this. They are dear brothers, dear sisters, members of the body of Christ, but I think they are wrong on this In the New Testament, it is apparent to me and to many Christians throughout church history that baptism follows repentance and faith in Christ. Again, there are other churches, even locally here, with whom we fellowship uh, who don't agree with that entirely. But it seems to me, through a natural reading of the text, Baptism consistently follows a response to the gospel that is described in this way, repenting from sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. And then Luke adds that the total number of those added to the church that day was approximately how many? 3,000. Tremendous, isn't it? I almost just pushed the podium over if you saw that bit tilted. Tilted. That was me. That was not the movement of the Spirit. (laughs) But don't lose sight of this. They were added passive. By whom? The implication, of course, is God the Spirit. The implication is God Himself is the one who's adding these to the church. So we do not grow the church, God grows the church. Healthy church growth is not the result, church family, it's not the result of implementing the right ministry formulas. Healthy church growth is, is not the result of sharing the gospel with an enough winsomeness or rhetorical ability, right? If we're convincing enough, the church is going to grow. That's not the reser- result that we're looking for. That's not healthy, spiritually vibrant church growth. No, church growth, at least properly speaking, is the result of the work of the Spirit of God rescuing sinners out of their spiritual death into spiritual life. God is the one who adds to the church. We're not. We just recognize those who are being added. That's what we're doing actually when we're baptizing. We're recognizing as a church those whom the Spirit of God is adding to the church. There is a caution, before we wrap up, a caution that is perhaps in order as we're interpreting Acts chapter two. And we come to the result of the spirits to sin at Pentecost. And I find this in my own heart, and and perhaps you find it in your own heart. We certainly find it at various points in church history. This perennial danger of interpreting texts like this as a description for what God typically does in the church. In other words, we read... Verse 41, that God added that day about 3,000 souls and we show up to every church service, we show up to every prayer meeting or we show up to every mission trip expecting God to add another few thousand and if he doesn't, somehow, maybe we've done something wrong. This desire is understandable, church family. Christians, we wanna see people, right? Once people come to know Jesus Christ, you wanna see God add 3,000 people to the church here in Knoxville? I do, authentically add them, genuinely add them. I want to see 3,000 people show up and repent of their sins and be baptized and be added to the church and serve Jesus Christ all the days of their lives. Absolutely. That desire is a good desire. By God's grace, certainly in a sense, we aim for it. But the church historically has understood that while the spirit who descended at Pentecost still operates today, the results of Pentecost itself and the other transitional events in the book of Acts are not ordinary for the church. They're extraordinary. I would submit to you that 3,000 people coming to know Jesus Christ for the very first time in one church service is not ordinary. It'd be great if it were. It's just not. God is capable of doing this in a single day. He's capable of doing it right here at First Baptist Powell. Acts chapter two, verse 41 is not a promise that he will do so ordinarily. Please hear that. Please hear that. Because if you don't let that sink in, what you're going to be tempted to do is what I'm tempted to do, to evaluate every effort in ministry by the degree to which many people come to know Jesus Christ. And so you can labor faithfully and serve Jesus Christ and only a handful of people come to know Jesus and you'll be tempted because you've read Acts 2.41. You'll be tempted to believe the spirit of God is not moving and I must have done something wrong. And that is just not true, dear Christians. The church of Pentecost, the church of Pentecost also became in the second century a very small persecuted minority serving Jesus faithfully, but not seeing the numbers of Pentecost on a regular basis. The church historically grows in a similar way to a strong, lasting, slow-growing oak tree. From year to year, you may not be able to see much difference. Decade to decade, you'll see much more difference. And even with some oak trees, century to century, you'll see significant difference. That's often, ordinarily, by the power of the Spirit of God, the church grows. Don't make Pentecost normative for every church service. This was unique. And yet, and yet, what should we expect in the 21st century as a church? We should expect to proclaim the same message Peter proclaimed. We should expect the same Spirit who rescued 3,000 that day to continue rescuing sinners, however many he chooses to rescue. We should expect that while many will reject the message, some will repent, believe, and be baptized. We should expect that every inch of authentic growth at First Baptist Powell and in the broader body of Christ will be the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel. And for this end, we will praise God. Okay, I wanna come full circle. There was a night my junior year. I mentioned to you, I came to know Jesus my junior year. There was a night my junior year of high school that proved to be a watershed moment for me. It was New Year's Eve 1999. So it's easy to remember. And uh, I drove a 1993 Oldsmobile Achieva. I love that Oldsmobile Achieva. Miss it to this day. Drove it till the wheels came off, quite literally. And the trunk, just to be clear, the trunk of my 1993, at that time, newly painted, I had saved that money and got a new paint job on it. Newly painted Oldsmobile Achieva was filled with the typical items you might find that characterize someone who is searching for fulfillment in all the wrong places. And at the time, I happened to be one who supplied these kinds of things to others, in large part because I was exposed to these kinds of things at a very early age. What stands out to me, though, it seems like yesterday in some respects, is that that night... Every time I would go up to the trunk of my Oldsmobile Chiva, I had heard the gospel at that point and I had begun thinking about the gospel and the implications of the gospel. I went up to my trunk and uh, looked into my trunk and every single time I shut my trunk and got nothing out of it. I had recently, as I mentioned, been exposed to the gospel. I had recently come to affirm even at that point that Jesus really did die in place of sinners, that he had risen from the dead on the third day. I affirmed these facts or propositions about Christ. However, affirming these facts about Christ was not all that I began to experience that night. You see, facts about Jesus did not prevent me from opening up the trunk and participating in all the activities I had participated in up until that point. Facts couldn't do it. For the first time in my life, I knew that if these facts were true about Christ, He really did demand my life, my soul, and my all. I knew that. To say that I was no longer attracted to sin would be a massive overstatement, still would be. Still have a damning attraction to sin that I despise. However, what began happening that night, and perhaps it began happening before then, but I just remember it acutely that night, what began happening was my attraction to sin was slowly beginning to give way to what the Bible calls faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance, turning my allegiance and my trust and my affections away from a life of sin and turning all of those things to Jesus Christ. And I had friends that night, I'll never forget some of the conversations. I remember where I was standing with one of the conversations and one of my friends came up to me and he said, Perry, what is wrong with you? And my answer to him was this because I just didn't know. I said, I have no idea. Something is different about how I feel. That's all I knew to say. Something had changed in me. The trunk to my 1993 Oldsmobile Achieva that night stayed full all night long. I welcomed in the year 2000 without drugs and without alcohol. Why? Because by God's grace, I was repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't long after this that I would be baptized by Pastor Willie Clark at at Sweet Home Missionary Baptist Church in obedience to Christ's instruction. And again, hear me say this, while I have struggled at various times and to varying degrees with with honoring Christ and with this, this remaining attraction to sin that's still there, Christ is Lord and Savior over my life. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would know him as the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am grateful to have had the privilege of opening up your word in Acts chapter two, verses 37 to 41. And of hearing you speak to all of us, a of life of faithfulness characterized initially with repentance, faith, and baptism, and a life that continues to be characterized by those who know you of repentance and ongoing faith. Thank you, Father, for rescuing me some goodness 23, 24 years ago. I see more clearly today what was really happening. In your mercy, you've exposed me to the gospel. Your spirit gave me life. You called me not simply externally, but internally to Jesus Christ. And you worked in me These graces we call repentance and faith. And that day, I began experiencing what it meant to turn my allegiance, affections, and trust away from sin and to Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, continue the work and finish the work you began that day. And do that among these, my brothers and sisters, for the glory of your name in Powell, in Knox County, in Tennessee, in America, and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.